This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. In 2017, you co-authored a journal, Microplastic Distribution at Different Sediment Depths in an Urban Estuary. Can you tell us oh. what that was about, please? Because very interested in this one. Yeah, it was a little project I did at the beginning of my PhD. So we had a researcher, Ruth Erickson, who got some sediment cores out of the Derwent Estuary, which is the main body of water that Hobart City sits on. And they actually got those sediment cores to age the sediments using lead isotopes. And Denise yet again saw this as a great opportunity because those cores were just sitting there in fridges, not doing anything. And so she thought to herself, well, I wonder whether we can slice these cores up and have a look at whether we can find microplastics and if so, where do they begin in the core? And so it was really great. Using lead isotopes, we were able to age the sediments through the core and then using a series of density separation and things to get the sediment separated from the organic matter and organic matter separated from the plastic, we were able to see, you know, when plastic settled in the sediment of estuary and therefore estimating when plastic first entered the marine system in the Hobart area. So yeah. And it was when, a really and, neat little project. Yeah, yeah. It's really so so what were the what were the findings from it? I mean we've we've uh, we've heard some pretty shocking stats on how many bits of microplastic are in Sydney Harbour. If, uh, Katie DeFront Katie from uh, yeah. the Sydney Institute yeah. of Marine Science estimates in half a cup of sediment instead of Sydney Harbour, you've got is it sixty pieces of plastic mm-hmm. microplastic something along those yep. lines. What, wow. what 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 were you guys finding? Um, we weren't finding that degree of of microplastics at all. I mean, Hobart got a lower population, so. I mean, that's kind of handy when you're looking at how much plastic is entering the environment. But we're finding an average of two bits of plastic per gram of sediment. So, yeah, how yeah, many grams of sediment? Good. How many? How many grams in half a cup? Come on, let's science the shit out oh, of this, mate. Oh, no, no, I'm not. Gonna... No, no. If you no, imagine no. a coke can. <laughs> if you imagine a coke can of sediment, probably uh, that's three seven five mils. 
obviously. So you'd think maybe roughly probably three seven five grams, grams. like roughly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're saying two grams. Sorry, two pieces of plastic per gram. So imagine a Coke can of wow. of, of, the, the, of uh, sediment would roughly roughly seven hundred and fifty pieces of plastic. Yeah. That is staggering. And Hobart is, is hardly LA. It's it's obviously it's a city, it's an urban area, but it's not you know highly highly densely populated and impervious. It just shows you again seven hundred and fifty. I mean, it's yeah. like I after this podcast, we'll, we'll, we'll actually do you know what part of this? We'll put it in the show notes. We'll get Kathy and Brad. We'll actually science the shit out of it again. But that'll be a really interesting <laughs> stat to compare it because look, one of the other questions I want to know is the time plastic started hitting because of the obviously the way yeah. you did calculation. When did plastic start flowing in? Well, we found plastics were entering in trend with when plastic production really ramped up. So from 1950 onwards, we saw an increase in plastic in the sediments matching the increase in global plastic production. So that's really, really kind of neat. Yeah. As soon as plastic becomes on the scene and we start using it, we're finding it in our sediment, in our yep. estuaries. And rivers. Wow. Yeah, and, it's and finding, look, find its way down there. And, and yeah. for our listeners, you know, a bit of sediment, you've got, you know, the food chain, the little biota, the little fish, you know, like these are these crustaceans, these bottom feeding, beautiful things like oysters or, or prawns. They're going down and they're nesting in that sediment and potentially ingesting plastic. One thing I would like to point out is that, like, we talk about getting good science and one of the sort of, I guess, urban myths that I've seen kicked about in Australia pre-CSIRO research around this is that, oh, yeah, we've got a lot of plastic on Australian beaches or whatever, but it's all coming from Asia. It's, mm. it's, it's not us. And this is something that I think CSIRO have essentially definitively proved to be false. And you guys have done a lot of research, and I'm guessing including this study that you mentioned and others once that I've seen both Denise and yourself you know, publish Mm-hmm. that it basically have showed conclusively that the vast majority of marine debris and plastic in Australian waterways and on obviously on our beaches, the vast majority of that pollution is from Australia and it's generated locally. It's not from Asia. Obviously, a portion of it is, but the vast majority of marine debris on Australian beaches is from Australia. Yeah, you're 100% correct. You know, we've done localised studies, so one around Brisbane and I did one around the Tasmanian coastline and then Denise and Chris Wilcox and their team also did a continental scale looking at where rubbish is coming from that we find on Australian beaches and every time it is locally sourced. These sources might be varying, you know, from beach visitors to things washing out on stormwater drains but yet they're all local-based sources. So it's our problem that we need to fix. We can't blame foreign countries and, you know, people overseas for the rubbish that we find. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And obviously one of the really interesting graphics I saw you show in your presentation that you did in Harbour was uh, this sort of map of Australia and showing the plumes of modelled or predicted plastic pollutant loads coming from Australia. And it's amazing Mm -hmm. to see that the plumes essentially coming out of our major river systems in our highly populated urban environments. Like I'm from Brisbane, uh, yeah, the big plume coming out of the Brisbane River. In Sydney, the big plume coming out of Sydney Harbour. The, in Melbourne, the big plume coming out of the uh, Yarra, et cetera. It, it was, yep. It's unquestionable 
you know, you look at something like that and that a picture paints a thousand words. The plastic pollution, the vast majority of it in Australian waterways and in our oceans is from Australia. It was amazing to see, to be honest. Yeah, it's pretty shocking and I don't think maybe a lot of people around Australia are fully aware of that, you know. Often there's the narrative of, you know, it's not our problem. I put all my rubbish in the beach, um, you know, not, not on the beach. I put all my rubbish in the bin. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I put all my rubbish in the bin. So it's not me who's littering. But if you think about, you know, that piece of rubbish that got blown out of your hand that you couldn't chase down and think about how many people are living in Australia and if everyone like has a piece of rubbish blown out of their hand, you know, that really adds up. Yeah. Even if we're and all doing the right thing, yeah. And with the science, like I'm guessing this is a fairly dirty job doing sort of beach surveys and litter surveys uh, at various locations, et cetera. Can, can you give people a feel for what's actually involved in that sort of research, that data compilation? Yeah. My friend actually called my field work the Russell Coit or Aussie Adventure <laughs> <laughs> because I got to drive a, you know, four-wheel drive around the entire of Australia's coastline and measured how much rubbish was on there. And so it can sound like a lot of fun getting to visit all of these gorgeous beaches around Australia, but in the reality, you know, I'm spending an hour on the beach and the whole time we're counting how much rubbish is there, then we're jumping in the car and we're driving off to the next site and we're doing that, you know, for a few months of the year. And so, you know, I've visited lots of beaches all around Australia, but... (laughs) I fairly like had time to touch the ocean during that, you know. <laughs> so I've been to many places, but I haven't really got to experience them, you know. I'm guessing it has to be scientifically robust as well. You can't just go to to Byron Bay, to Noosa, to you know Port Douglas. You've got to like essentially visit a beach location every X kilometer, <clears> and then do the same. And obviously, these locations are often very, very hard to get to, etc. Yeah. So we randomly selected our beaches so we didn't bias, you know, Byron Bay or all the really <laughs> glamorous beaches. So they're all randomly selected and sometimes that it makes getting access to those beaches very difficult. I've had many occasions where I uh, just drive up to a farmer's house, knock on their door and ask if I can use one of their roads to access the beach because there's no public access or it's working in collaboration and getting in touch with the Parks and Wildlife Services and getting a few of their rangers to help me. So we did some surveys along the Coorong in South Australia, and so that wouldn't have been able to happen if we didn't have the local knowledge of the rangers of that area and also being given the opportunity to actually access those areas too. Mm. You know, it was a huge collaborative effort to try and access these beaches. And it's really great that everyone can get behind the project. You guys are sort of proving that a lot of our plastic waste is, is washing back up. Denise has shared that with us and, and from your research, it's actually washing back up on our shores. What's the research behind the amount of plastic that sinks? You know, because a lot of the, the time people think that it just everything floats on, on, on the top of the ocean. Have you done any research or looked at, you know, the amount of plastic within the water column, where it lies? You know, you've got a lot of neutrally buoyant plastic, you know, like plastic bags don't necessarily float. And for our listeners, if you could just give us a bit of an indication on, you know, what's at the surface from what you know, what's in the, you know, the 10 metres and then what's on the floor? That's a really good question. I don't know if I can give oh, Come on, you, doctor. <laughs> give you the, the numbers for uh, how much we find. But there is um, in 
plastic pollution scientific literature, there is this discussion about where all the missing plastic is going. So, you know, we can calculate how much plastic waste is leaving land masses and entering into the ocean. But then when we look at how much waste is actually, like how much plastic is floating on the ocean surface, it doesn't add up. So, you know, there's quite a few. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And so there's discussion about where this missing plastic is going. So um, there is a proportion that's, you know, sinking to the bottom of the, the sea floor. And so there's reports about plastic being found, you know, almost down into the Mariana Trench. So we're talking, you know, tens of kilometres deep under the ocean. Um, and then there's other part where we believe that, you know, the majority of plastic is entering the marine system, but then is getting washed down the currents and getting washed back up onto our beaches. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very um, interesting. Yeah, no, it, it is very interesting. And the only sort of bit of research that we sort of, you know, talk to is the Eunomia study. And, and that sort of indicates that they're saying something like only 1% of the total plastic is actually sitting on the surface. Brad, my, 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 my mate, yeah, am I right? Yeah, I can include a link in the show notes. The Eunomia study indicates that of all the plastic in the ocean, only about 1% of that total mass is actually at the ocean surface. Um, mm. About 5% of that ocean plastic ends up on our beaches, but the, the lion's share, and they reckon about 94% ends up on the sea floor. Now, that might only be like a intermittent period, but certainly it's a very large proportion of the total mass. Well, yeah, the like it, fr- it freaks you out. I mean, even, even if they're out by 10% and 75% of it's on the, on, the, on the ocean floor, I mean, it's shocking, really. And these are the things that we need to talk about and discuss because I love Boy and Slant. I, I, I really love her, the tenacity of the guy. And for, for our listeners, you probably that, you know, that listen to us. I don't know how many there are now. A couple of hundred, I think we're up to a week. But for our listeners, they know about this guy. He's done so, so much good stuff for advocacy around the issue. He's out there with his ocean cleanup project trying to stop the five gyruses and then intercept the plastic. He's now moving up to river and he's created what's called the interceptor, which is again taking surface plastic off rivers throughout Asia and strategic locations. But again, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars are going into, hey, let's fix, fix the problem once it's really, really unfixable out in the middle of the ocean, you know? Yeah. And conversations and the research that you're doing and the stuff that we've been doing. Is, is we've got to go back up to the tree, and we keep harping on about the waste management hierarchy. I don't know if we're doing it wrong, Brad, but, you know, it's, pre- pre- it's pretty simple. Avoid using it. Reuse. Recycle. You, you go down the train. You, you go down to stormwater management, which is a really big part. But the last thing on that is going out and mopping up the problem. You know, there's a lot of money that's mm-hmm. been spent out there doing that. Don't get me wrong. It needs to be done, but you've really, truly got to turn the tap off. And the research that you guys are doing Gee, it's um, it's vital to be able to tell the story and to go to government and say, "Hey, Brad and I think this." No, Kathy and Denise think this from Syro. That holds a lot more weight because you're an independent, scientific, fantastic people, and the work you're doing and describing the uh, the fact you go out and go up into these rural areas and. And, 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 yeah, it, it's not all glamorous. I mean, you wouldn't be surfing every day or, you know, out there fishing. You're actually out there doing the hard yards, and it's the grind. You're trying to find data. And data takes away anyone's opinions because, you know, everyone's got one. 
it gets back to my original point that if we're serious about solving any environmental issue, it needs to be backed up with solid science. The overwhelming scientific message for my mind that CSIRO have in this discussion around ocean plastic is the vast majority of ocean plastic is coming from land-based sources. And the key mechanism as to how it gets there is, I guess, from our densely populated urban environments and essentially stormwater is a key mechanism. I'm just keen to sort of get my head around this sort of study by the, the looking at all the beaches around Australia, like how how did the pollution change across the Australian coastline? Like, am I right in saying I'm guessing the densely populated areas would have had a, a higher amount of pollution or is it pretty consistent across Australia? What, what did you find? Yeah, so we found beaches that have high local populations definitely had more waste and we also found that if the beaches are quite easily accessible so you know they're close to main roads they have lots of car parks and they also have a lot of litter but then also you know beaches that are facing predominant onshore winds so those winds and waves driving any waste that is in the local waters it's just driving that back up onto the beaches so there's, yeah there's quite a few mechanisms to disentangle to really find out you know where we find lots of rubbish I'm guessing the nature of that pollution changes as well. Like, I'm, whilst we're talking about land-based sources, I'm guessing up near, say, Arnhem Land, and we had a conversation with uh, Sea Shepherd Australia's Graham Lloyd around, and also Ben Pearson from World Animal Protection around just the amount of ghost nets that that are sort of on the beaches of Arnhem Land. So obviously, we don't mm. see that down in, you know, uh, Portugal Bay or Tassie. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, the nature of the pollution changes quite significantly around the Australian coastline. Yeah, you're 100% correct. So, you know, we see on the, you know, the west coast of Tasmania, up in northern Arnland, we find quite a lot of fishing debris along those remote coastlines. But then, yeah, if you look at beaches that are, you know, say Bondi Beach or St Kilda Beach, we're going to find a lot of, you know, plastic packaging and food items, household plastic items on those beaches where people are. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. And, and, and I remember reading from one of your studies, like in terms of identifying the key sources of that pollution. I know there was a lot of research around uh, or data around you found higher amounts of debris in areas with lots of stormwater pipes. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So that was some research I did around Tasmania. And yeah, we found that, you know, beaches that are, have a high density of stormwater drain outlets within like a five kilometer radius and also just how close a beach is to just the nearest stormwater drain. 
they had, yeah, substantially more rubbish than, yeah, beaches without. And so I guess that really like comes back to, to the point you're making that, that, you know, these storm water drains are one of the major transport mechanisms of, you know, all of the litter that is getting thrown out into the, you know, on our streets, in our parks, you know, it's all coming down those drains and ending up on our beaches. Yeah, and, and the interesting part of that is, I think you said it before, Cathy, people aren't aware, if, if, if someone, if something came out of their hand every day, there's, I mean, what's the population of Australia? 25 million, you know, there's 25 million bits of plastic. You get accidental littering, which is a huge amount. You get wind litter. You know, you, you've only got to drive yeah. up a main motorway and look on the side of the road, and there's just crap everywhere. And and going back to it, it's a great transport mechanism. And that's why I go back to my, you know, my sort of way I look at it as veins. You know, the the heart is the ocean, and the veins are the stormwater drains. And that's that's why I sort of try to think about it because, you know, the the, the heart being the ocean is connected into all these cities. You know, like you imagine all the way through, and it's just as soon as it rains, pumps it down, and it's an it's an amazing mechanism to get water off. You know, it's it's you know, hats off to the guys who you know came up with the idea hundreds of years ago. You know, but we just didn't think about we as humans and the load of pollution that we produce. You know, so it's interesting to know from your point of view that's the data that you're seeing because we see it every day again. And, you know, I, I like listening to, to the sound of my voice sometimes, but not Brad's, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's just, it's refreshing to hear scientists, you know, coming to a similar conclusion. I mean, we don't have it all right, and we're, we're only just one part of the, the toolbox. And everybody out there that's trying to do their best for it, it's all part of it. And, and you'd be naive to think that you could solve it all by, you know, just stopping stormwater. So many things along the way. But as one of the main transports, of pollution, particularly plastic, it's something that's really got to be addressed. And, you know, with the research that you guys are doing and hopefully with a bit of advocacy from Ocean Protect, we can really put the data in front of people that make the decisions to invest in infrastructure to actually stop this happening. Because Brad's point, this is an easy thing. Plastic is easy to intercept. It's a physical screening mechanism. You know, Brad, you're writing papers on the solubility of nitrogen and phosphorus within stormwater, that's very difficult. These are, you know, soluble pollutants that change their, their form as they go through the water column and through time and heat. Very complex issues. Plastic, for our, you know, for my mind, to use um, Brad's point, is easy. It's the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. We've got the ability to, to really reduce it now, and it's something that we're very keen on. We're actually advocating for to go up to all levels of government during this time uh, at, at, you know, looking at COVID-19 and how they stimulate the economy, well, we're going to do our best to, to put our hands up as an industry to try and get some of that money that they are going to stimulate the economy with because we, we believe the fact that a lot of these assets aren't maintained, that local government could employ lots, and we're talking thousands of people, to go out now and look at existing infrastructure to maintain existing infrastructure. And these guys don't have to be scientists. They could be someone that just lost their job from Virgin. We could skill them up in two days. They could get out there and do it. We believe we can employ thousands of Australian people now by getting the stimulus going, by making sure everything gets maintained. Brad, if you want to throw some numbers out, I'm sure we can share them. If everything got maintained in Australia, what do you reckon? How much plastic do you reckon we could uh, take out of our waterways? 
Oh, yeah, well, we know uh, that if, just the simple stuff, just if we maintained our existing film treatment assets, we reckon we'd probably stop around 500 wheelie bins of plastic every day going into our oceans. And like we've been advocating for, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the zero litter ocean target and just just by mm-hmm. Australia are, are working towards and achieving this target, we reckon we'd probably stop around 600 wheelie bins worth of plastic going into our oceans every day, which probably works out to be about one and a half tonne of plastic going into our ocean every hour. So just by achieving zero litter ocean, we can probably stop around one and a half tonne an hour of plastic going into our oceans and waterways, which isn't uh, insignificant, obviously. Well, and actually, just on that, being a, being a uh, Tasmanian local, and uh, who was the guy who, who championed the single use down there? Do you mean Bill Harvey? Bill, Bill oh, Harvey. Can, okay. Yeah. Bill, can you hook us up with Bill? Because Hobart and Tasmania should be going zero litter dilution. Uh, well, can I tell you? Can I tell you, Jeremy? Bill's already agreed to be on our podcast. Has he? <laughs> yeah. We we, uh, we actually uh, teed up Bill as one of our first guests last year, but we had the grand ambition we're actually going down to Hobart. Oh, and to interview Bill in person, along with Kathy. But, oh, that's right. Uh, we never made it to Hobart, and. We're probably a little while longer off going to Hobart now, so yeah. uh, we might actually have to get Bill on the podcast. Let's line them up first, you know. Let, okay, let's okay, you okay. know, let's really line them up. Let's get the information to him. Maybe he, he could announce live on our podcast that they've agreed to go zero litter to ocean. And just for, for all our listeners, all we're trying no to pressure, do, Bill. No for pressure. all our listeners, all we're trying to do is we're going to say stop anything over five millimeters. So anything over a cigarette butt, we don't want to be discharged into our oceans by twenty thirty. This Syro have a bit more of an ambitious target. Uh, I believe Denise is talking, no, I want it by 2025, which, hey. Denise is talking about a 90% reduction in litter in Australia by 2025. Yeah. And And I think that's really achievable. Oh, totally, totally. If everyone got out and maintained their assets, public and private, a lot more, you know, public awareness, education, it is achievable. It certainly is achievable. Getting back to the science, we actually haven't even talked about the ecological consequences of of the the amount of plastic and marine debris in our oceans and waterways. But CSIRO, again, have done a whole bunch of cool research around this, showing that uh, around 43% of short-tailed shearwaters have plastic in their stomach. And 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 they're predicting that plastic ingestion in seabirds will reach about 95% of all species by 2050 which is pretty scary. They've shown that uh, yeah. approximately one-third of marine turtles globally have ingested plastic. And so a lot of people have seen the footage of the, of the you know, the birds, the albatrosses and the turtles dying of plastic ingestion. But I'm really keen to ask you about the potential health impacts. So the CSI have done a, uh, and shown that there's a whole bunch of plastic in our waterways and our ocean and in our, even in our sediment at crazy concentration. Is this amount of plastic in our waterways and oceans, is that a human health risk? Uh, it potentially could be. What's really hard is to, to actually get the data behind making those connections. So we can say that, yes, you know, these microplastics and plastics in our waterways are, you know, uh, active sponges to absorb other nasty chemicals that we've also put into the marine system. And we do know that, you know, fish that we like to eat, seabirds and things, they also are eating those plastics. But we haven't yet been able to, like, quantitatively make that leap to saying that, yes, the, you know, the heavy metals and things that we find in fish tissues and and in the tissue of seabirds is definitively from the plastic that they're ingesting. So it's uh, it's in wait and see, but, I mean, 
I don't think we really should just wait and see. What we should be doing is we should be able to tick a box and when you die, you should say, hey, carve me up for a bit of research. Because I mean, how 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 else? How else? Uh, early he, service, Jeremy. If you what, want. Hey, no, no, hey, buddy. But no, no. But let's be serious about it. How do you actually I'm get sure, the data? I totally, I totally agree. How do you actually get the data? How do you you know cut someone up and then go hey analyze what's in their body? I mean, is that what it's, it's going to really, take? It's 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 really hard. This is, I remember having this conversation with Daryl Blatchley. Like he he can take a a, a deceased five point seven meter long juvenile whale, cut open its belly. And show the, the belly of this small whale has 40 kilograms of plastic in its stomach. But yet the scientific community still says, Oh, look, we, but we can't definitively say that this whale died of plastic. I mean, for sure, but it, it, it potentially was a key contributing factor towards its death. It's the same thing. Like with, we know there's plastic in fish. We know there's plastic in birds. We know plastic is a sponge for a whole bunch of nasty chemicals, including heavy metals. We know. There's heavy metal contamination in various fish species and, and prawns, et cetera, which humans eat. We know that there's uh, elevated concentrations in, of heavy metals and other pollutants in humans. So all these things line up. We can't definitively say, oh, yeah, Bob ate a fish and dropped dead, and that fish probably had mercury, so the, the pollution in the mercury killed Bob. It's a really hard link to make. But mm. from my perspective, when I was at university, we talked about the precautionary principle. Uh, you know, if it, yeah. it's it's really it's not a long bow to to stretch to go. You know what? There's a fair. It's it's there's a lot of dots lining up, uh, and whilst we might not be able to join them up definitively and conclusively and scientifically robustly, gee whiz, it's certainly pointing in that direction. So let's apply the precautionary principle and do something about the crazy amount of pollution entering our oceans and waterways, even if we don't care about birds and fish and whales, et cetera, if we're purely selfish and care about the human health risk associated with pollution, we should do something about it and we should do something about it now and as a priority. But this is what I come back to the point, mate. I totally agree with you, Brad, and it's not always, you know, that we actually agree. But I totally agree, and hopefully this COVID-19, we can draw a bow to that. You know, we're precautionary washing our hands every day, doing all that stuff based on, you know, are we going to contract this virus and whatever. There's a hell of a lot of precaution on this. Yet, if you look at all yeah. the facts as to what's happening to our environment in so many different ways, and we're still going, oh, no, we can't definitively say that. What about a level of precaution yeah. to do with Mother yeah. Nature? I mean, it's you know, that, yeah, that's I, I my frustration. Yeah, like I totally agree. We're picking and choosing our issues as to which – we want to take a precautionary approach to. That's why we have insurance. Oh. And I, I think I think just like the the harm of of consuming the plastic is just beside the point. Think about all the other impacts that plastic is having on people's livelihoods. You know, we've seen that you know plastic pollution has caused flooding in some areas, and in other cases, you see those photos of of you know the developing countries where people are you know that waterways are just completely choked with plastic. I mean, you know, when we're here in Australia, we, we're able to look out on these pristine beaches and completely can be ignorant to the livelihoods of other people who have many other pressures on their, on their life and with plastic just being one of them. So, you know, just go and visit some developing countries if you need motivation to think about, you know, how much plastic you should be using or throwing away. Well, very interesting you say that. Again, we, we interviewed uh, Laura Wells, who uh, was on a, a great expedition, 300 women across, I think, eight or 10 legs, led by Emily Penn, 
to go through all around the world and to do scientific research on how much plastic is actually in our ocean. Um, listen to the podcast because they got stopped halfway through due to COVID-19, had to make a, a mad rush to a French Polynesian waters and whatever. So they had to halt that research. Brad, I can't remember what region, what, what leg they were on, um, but... The, the, going to Tahiti. Tahiti. Okay, so, yeah, 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 so great. So yeah. this is the scary part. They were sailing through the most pristine waters. You know, there was, you know, they were expecting, you know, plowing through bloody plastic. They, they, they couldn't see anything until they started doing the research. And they could not see any plastic. But once you start putting it the sieve out, once you really started analysing it, the numbers of small particles of plastic that were within the water, which you couldn't see, was unbelievable. They had a machine on there, which cost a gazillion dollars, which could actually analyse the type of microplastic there was and, and then, you know, say within a certain reason where it came from. I mean, she was so shocked by the fact that it looked absolutely amazing. The naked eye couldn't, could not decipher if there was plastic in there or not, but it was riddled. I don't know the stats, Brad, I can't remember, but yeah, I mean, it, it was yeah. mind-blowing. So when people sit there and go, oh, it's like going to New Zealand, and New Zealand looks all clean and green, but there's still plastic in the lakes, there's still plastic in the oceans over there. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, looks can be deceiving. Brad knows what that means. <laughs> Look, I'm conscious. We've been, we, I, I know what we're Jeez, like. We can talk underwater about this. We've been talking for <laughs> a, a long time, and I'm just conscious of getting, you know, make sure Kathy can uh, get an early night so she can get up in the morning and do some fantastic research. But just like one last question. So we've talked to death about the problem of ocean plastic and marine pollution. So it's a big problem. But Kathy, the question to you, can we solve it? Oh, 100%. Totally. Yeah, I think if everyone does a little bit, I think we can definitely make an impact. Obviously, we're not all research scientists. We're not all software engineers. So what, what does that little bit look like? Well, so the, the, the avid listener, all motivated about doing something in their own personal lives around sort of mitigating their own impact on the oceans and waterways and trying to do something about plastic and other pollution. So what uh, for the uh, average listener, what could they potentially do to mitigate this problem? I would strongly advise them to write letters to their local council to really encourage them to take action on this. I would also encourage them to do the take three for the sea. I think that's a really important thing. And I would also recommend that just trying to reduce the amount of plastic material that they're purchasing, you know, trying to avoid buying that packaging, try and buy things in bulk. I think that will make a really big difference. Yeah, so Brad, stop buying so much hair product in bulk, okay? <laughs> that's that's number one. Hey, well, look, in wrapping this up, when we first met you and, and we heard you talking, I'm not joking, we were so excited. We were like, oh, my God, someone's <laughs> talking our own language. That was in Coffs Harbour. It's always great to hear people that are articulate like you are, you're, you're smart, you're practical, you want to get in there and go and round all the beaches. And, and, you know, from what I know of you, you're just a, a genuinely lovely person and appreciate the time that you've taken. You know, everyone's got, you know, issues at the moment when it comes to COVID and family. I don't even know what the, what's going on in your personal life, but I know that everyone's got issues at the moment. So thank you so much for coming on our, our little show. I can tell Oscar in the background, Brad's dog, was very, very interested in the whole chat. <laughs> he hasn't moved once. I, 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 feel my little, uh, 
one of my two little cavoodles has been sitting uh, next to me is, uh, passed is, out hey, but, the whole time. Yeah, yeah, but, but hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sometimes when we do podcasts, he's just eating bones right next to you, you yeah. know. So, look, you, yeah. you must have a calming voice. Um, but, no, in all seriousness, thanks so much for coming on. You know, it, um, Brad and I think that we've got a podcast and everyone likes listening to us. Well, it's not us. It's our guests. And um, we, we really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity, Jeremy and Brad. It's, uh, it's so good and good practice explaining the research and letting people know what's going on. Keep up the great work, Kathy. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.